Ready? You're on top. Yo yo, yo ma! ma! And welcome to the very second episode of Spinning Yards, proudly brought to you by Pillar to Post. My name's Jay Bor. Big fat Darth. And tonight we have a very special guest. Absolutely awesome. My favourite player of all time. Following on from last week, Harry Wilson, uh, Northern New South Wales, Queensland Reds, Wallabies. Don't forget, also played 10 games for the Tars. Uh-huh. A lot of people wouldn't know that <laughs> early on in his career, but it's none other than Queensland and Wallabies legend, Chris Latham. Yes. Cut the Cut the Waratahs out, that's for sure. But um... Now, Latham, I want to ask you, because I grew up idolising you. You were my favourite player of all time. Skinny little chicken legs, socks pulled down, hunched over running style, a very unique style of play. You were all about the torpy kick. I loved you growing up. And I always thought you were Queensland rugby royalty. But the thing is, a lot of people wouldn't know, and it took me a hell of a long time to find out, you're actually from country New South Wales, uh, out of Narrabri with the Narrabri Blue Boars. I am from Narrabri, but you wouldn't believe it. In 1975, at exactly 8 o'clock at night, I don't know why or how, but the Queensland border moved northwest for about probably five minutes, and then within that five minutes, I was born. So I was actually born in Queensland, and then the border was moved back again, and then I was living in New South Wales. So not many people know that. It's probably just you, me, and um, that's about it. So. Um, but that's, believe it or not, that's the truth. Now, Latho, uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, a good friend of yours, uh, he gave me the inside tip and he actually said, you're at the game on the weekend. We just saw the doggies go down and an arbiter to the brethren. Um, and there's rumours uh, abounding that you are the jinx that did jinx. it in for the doggies because you played in three grand finals Oof. and lost all three, didn't you? Yeah, I um, I didn't know if I should turn up or not because yeah, I've been in, I've been in three grand finals, um, all three grand finals we've been in front by half time by plenty. I think the biggest margin, I think the biggest margin was thirty six six at half time against Souths, and um, after half time, Souths made seven uh, seven changes, and with those seven changes came seven Wallabies. And uh, we ended up losing, I think it was uh, 40, 41, 45 or 6 or something like that. I don't know what it was, but we lost. So, um, yeah, I remember saying at half time um, that uh, when they went in at the break at, uh, in the lead, I said, oh, don't get too excited. We've all, I've been here before. And, uh, yeah, I think I gave them the kiss of death after that, which was, um, yeah, a bit of a shame. So, Latho, one of those grand finals actually happened to be on your wedding day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, obviously, the year had been planned and the, the grand final was a Sunday. And given the fact that there's not much time between Super Rugby, Test Rugby, and then the overseas tour, um, you know, we'd organised the wedding to be on the Saturday uh, before the, the grand final. And Obviously, my wife thought that would be a good idea. There'd be less chance of me being belted up and, and looking um, worse than probably what I already did look. So she, uh, we organised it. It was on the Saturday and 
I think it was about a month before the finals and we were looking pretty good to be in the finals. They made a change because of TV rights. Uh, they needed the, the final to be on the Saturday. So they changed it to Saturday. So then we then decided we'd change it. We had enough time to change our wedding to the Sunday. So we did all the changing and put everything to the Sunday, uh, which was fine. And then I think it was about two or three weeks out before the final and uh, we were, I think we'd already cemented our spot in the final. It was two weeks before the final. We'd cemented, cemented ourselves in. I think we had the week off before. And uh, they changed it back again to the Sunday. And obviously <laughs> by that time, it was too late to change it. Uh, so what ended up having was we got married in the morning um, and, and had, our, had our photos done prior to the grand final. <laughs> and then myself and the entire wedding party uh, went to Ballymore and um, the, the wedding party obviously then I splurged out and got them seats on the hill. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they, yeah, they, uh, they got themselves there. Well, we obviously got them and provided them with uh, as much alcohol as they wanted and they sat on the hill and yahooed and watched the game and I played and that was obviously the game where we were in front by 30-something and then oh. we ended up losing. And then um, then we went to the reception afterwards and uh, to be honest, it all worked out perfectly well because <laughs> you know that gap between getting married and the reception and, uh, and uh, well, the getting married and then the reception at the end was perfect timing. It, it broke it up obviously for the wedding party to come back and watch the game but the best part of all was the money that i put over the bar um at the reception hardly even got touched because everyone was souped from the, from the grand final in the hill so uh, and, the, and the alcohol was a lot cheaper for me at ballymore with my connections so fantastic for me. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's sick. Oh, it really, really broke the day up, Latho. Mate, um, uh, mate um, you've, uh, it's been announced that um, you're coming back to West as a, uh, you're going to be coaching the Colts with uh, uh, Phil Mooney and Harry Higgins. What, um, what, what drew you back to coaching at West and, um, and coming back down to West? Yeah, obviously, I've known Phil for, for a very, very long time. He was uh, my coach at, at West when I first moved to West. And then, obviously, he, he was with the Reds when I was at the Reds. So I've had a long history of being coached by Phil. Uh, and then when I'd finished playing rugby, I was coaching in Japan. Um, and Phil, was by that stage, was coaching in Japan as well. So to be able to uh, sit with Phil and, and talk coaching with Phil – um, as opposed to sitting down as a coach player with Phil was um, was a great insight for me. And uh, at the moment, I've got a, a 16-year-old son who who uh, is at school and in year 11. And, um, you know, he's got his last year of school in year 12. And it all just came together where I'd been either playing or coaching for the last and on the road and kind of backwards and forth from living... Uh, in and out of that, probably, I think about 20, 24 years. And it just got to a point where I'd had enough and I just wanted to be a little bit more stable and a little bit more secure in my thoughts and where I wanted to be. And, and then also have that time with my son where, you know, he had me 24-7 where, you know, I can drop him to school, pick him up, 
on weekends or whenever a holiday, we can go fishing, camping, do whatever we want to do with that father-son bond. So a lot of those things came together. And then obviously being at home has now opened that opportunity to coach with Phil. And, um, you know, again, it's once my son's finished at year 12, you know, I want to be a professional coach. I want to continue being a professional coach. So it's, it's, working along those lines of its professional development for me, both working for Phil, well, with Phil, and then also being able to pass on to the next generation and back to Wes, who was so good to me uh, when I first came to, to Brisbane. Um, you know, they're, they're a wonderful club. They're a fantastic club to be a part of. And, you know, I saw the glory days of that club and, you know, I'd like to be able to, yes, they have been in premierships in the, the prem grade but you know i want to get it back to where we've got you know a lot of cults or well, all our cults grades in finals we're strong but more importantly i'm just giving back to rugby and 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 being able to help mold and and i guess produce hopefully the next the next superstar of australian and queensland rugby have you um have you had much to do with harry higgins as yet later uh no no, not at all. I've um, I've heard heard a lot uh, from various people, and um, I've had one I've had one meeting um, uh, with him. So I've had a, I've had a meeting with him. Yes, um, but yeah, no, not a lot to do with him. No. All right. Well, yeah. Just keep your head on a swivel around Higgins. That's for sure. <laughs> but um, so the uh, the temptation to coach alongside uh, your old mate Stephen Keys at uh, the Narrabri Blue Balls that was never there. Oh, I think I think we've hit something. Don't. <laughs> that was an emphatic no. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely no, mate. Um, you are you, your time at the Reds, um, all the way from nineteen ninety seven, where professionalism had kind of just come in the game in the last couple of years, uh, all the way to the uh, end of your career or end of your career in Australia in 2008. Um, you announced you were going over to Worcester and that was a that was a that like a shock to the rugby community. How could a Queensland Red look, uh, like Latho leave? But you look at rugby nowadays and everybody understands why people leave, why players have to go overseas. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on um, the, the current state of Aussie rugby with all those players going overseas, mate? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, rugby is a business. Um, it's a job. Uh, whether whether you're a, a purist, uh, old school purist, or a, or a, or a new age um, follower to rugby, no matter which way you look at it, it's a job. It's a business. And I, I, I often say to a lot of people that, that have the view of, you know, loyalty's gone out of the game and, you know, things like that. Loyalty hasn't changed. It's just what loyalty's changed, but it hasn't gone. Um, and you can, you, you, I kind of look at it a little bit differently. And I try to explain to people, you know, if you're, if, if you've got a, what you'd call a, a, a normal job and, the opposition to your job as a as a, a factory or a, or a shop next door, and they come across and offer you 
you know, more money to, to, to just go across the road and, and, um, and work for them, you know, you'd be silly not to consider it, if not take the job. And it's no different for a rugby player. Yeah. Uh, but the big difference is, is that, you know, jobs, normal jobs, uh, these days have a lot more security. It's a lot harder to lose your job. It's a lot harder to be sacked. You can't just lose your job at a whim where a rugby player at any stage can lose his job. You know, you can, within one game or one training session, you get to get a major injury, you're done. Um, for any reason that a new coach comes in and doesn't see what the last coach sees and you, and your contract's out, you're done. So it's, it can be very short. Um, so you've got to make that earning capacity uh, when and wherever you can. But then on the flip side, I also see it as an opportunity for, for, for professional outfits. They need to change, you know. No longer is there that, that loyalty of, well, I'm a Queensland Red, you know, I've played my club football at West, my juniors at West, my seniors, I went through the cult system at West and then into grade and then from grade I went into the, you know, into the academy at the Reds, and then I played the Reds, and you know that I'm a Red at heart, and I've been there. That mm. still lives, but now you've got to give them more incentive other than what's available overseas, and that is a hell of a lot more money. So that comes and puts pressure on to what type of program you want to have, the environment in which you provide them. You know, if you've got a, a, a fantastic environment uh, and, and a program. Where they can see growth and they can see, and and they're they're happy to be there. It's fun and it's exciting, but not only that, you know, that, like I said, they've got that growth. Well, then you're going to have a better chance of keeping them there. And I, I, I suppose looking at it and seeing it from afar, and I, I haven't been involved in the system, and I don't, and I've never had any chats to to this person. But if you look at the kind of system that Kevy Walters has, has developed over the last couple of years at the Broncos. From when they were struggling to keep players to now, you know, it, it's all centered around mateship and an environment in which they can express themselves and an environment which is fun. You can see that it's fun. You can see the enjoyment that they all have. And the biggest thing they got now is that all these young players that he had signed are all now asking or, or in the market that can ask for big dollars. Mm -hmm. So it's really going to be interesting to see how many of those guys they keep when it comes to sacrifice and, and things like that. And, I mean, the great clubs have done it for many years. The Melbourne Storm, um, the, the, the Roosters, they've all had massive uh, big players in, in, in numbers and, you know, and they're held by a salary cap, yet they seem to be able to hold them. So loyalty can be there, but it's, it's just in a different sense now and it's, it's up to clubs and and organisations to make sure that it's an environment in which people can grow and they can see themselves um, improving. Well, I want to ask you then, Leif, a bit of a two-pronged question. Firstly, what are your thoughts on the Giddo law then? Because at the moment we've seen that so many players are going overseas and under, I don't know what it is, but under a new coaching system and a new environment, they actually excel. Will Skelton, uh Sam Carter's one, you know, Rory Arnold, Richie Arnold, all these guys who've gone overseas and have actually gone to another level. Um, and then secondly, um, your thoughts on the actual Super Rugby setup then, because it used to be that 
you know, like the majority of the money is made through Wallabies, through international rugby. Now with a Super 15 season being give or take 15 games, the Wallabies also now play at least 12, upwards of 15, 16 games a year. Do you think it's worth scrapping the Giddo law to then allow our players to be coached by the best to play against the best to play in the biggest and best competitions in the world, club competitions in the world, so they can then come back and contribute to the Wallabies and international setup with a wide and vast array of knowledge and experience. Yeah, again, I probably think there's there's two sides of it. One, you can never make everyone happy, and as far as matching dollars, I don't think we're going to be in that position for for a while to be able to match dollars of what you can get overseas. So, yeah, I think we've got to have that flexibility and ability to. Um, if players are going to go and, and that's their decision, then when it comes to the Wallabies, we want to be able to pick the best. So I think that that's got to be there. But from the other side of it as well, you know, the players that you've just mentioned, they're all, they left when they were young. Mm. And I think there's, you know, there's a massive amount of pressure put on performance especially from our key area players like 10 in, in that 10, 5, 8 position where, you know, we have this young schoolboy superstar that comes out of um, schoolboy rugby with all these raps, uh, gets in and does a lot of good things um, and then all of a sudden gets this massive media following and this ma- and then... There's all this pressure on them to perform, and then obviously they get into Super Rugby, which is which is entirely different format. Or they get their opportunity into into the Wallabies with this massive rap behind them, and they haven't had that time to do their apprenticeship. They haven't had that time to find their their own game, let alone steer a team or or, or you know or, or be able to work a team around. And, and get those wins and get those performances. And then all of a sudden, from a, from a media point of view, they're getting sculled. I mean, you can only look at um, Lolaseo. Mm, yeah. yeah, he's taken the, uh, you know, the Brumbies were the premier franchise this year. Um, and, you know, and he guided that team and played that team for that team. He'd had, he'd had test matches for the Wallabies. He had all this following. And then all of a sudden, a few, and I won't say bad games, but a few games there where he wasn't at his best, and then all of a sudden, now he can't even make an Australian A team, or he can't even, um, you know, he's not even in the Wallabies or in the look. Now, for whatever reason, there might be a reason behind the doors that that happened. I, I'm not privy to that, and I don't know. It's only what you see and uh, what I've seen. But it's he's not the only person that's ever happened to, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, that young guy that had a fantastic schoolboy season or, or a young age season with it wherever he was has been thrusted into super rugby and done extremely well and then got in the wallabies and then unfortunately had a couple of had good games but then a couple of bad games and then there's not and then all of a sudden he's gone I think we need to be more patient with our younger players I think we need to be more focused on development of these younger players from when they're younger. We need to put more time and effort into developing our younger players because, like you said, we see all these players then take off and go overseas and after four, five, six years of playing overseas, 
that gives them that time to find their game. That gives them the, that time to do their apprenticeship and be mature enough to, to lead teams, run teams. Uh, they know how to win. They know what it takes to win. They know what's going to make teams lose um, if they don't, you know, tick, tick the list of what's required to win. And, you know, they've got that. And then all of a sudden they come back and they go, well, where was this six years ago? Well, six years ago, we just needed to be a little bit more patient with them. Six mm. years ago, we needed to protect them a little bit more and develop them and coach them and and, bring, and mentor them through. So um, you know, I think that's an area in which we lack as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, mate, long-winded um, answer, I'm sorry, but... No, I love it. Well, look, this, this probably speaks truly to you wanting to coach Colts as well, like uh, try to... Uh, bring these blokes well, through. Uh, there's a topic in itself, you know, where when it comes to developing our, um, our younger players and mentoring them there, we also need the coaching to be able to do that. And, you know, we talk about pathways for players um, and what is that pathway now for, for players because that's evolved and changed. Yeah. There's never really been a pathway for a coach. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, when you ask, around the traps of, oh, how do I get into this or how do I do that? It's, well, go overseas and do your apprenticeship. Well, then you go overseas and you do your apprenticeship. You learn how to coach. You you know, I've, I've coached 10 years in Japan and then went to a World Cup with Samara. I was a head coach of, of, a, of a US team. And then you come back and it's like, oh, yeah, but, but – and it's – you, you kind of – there's no real avenue if you're a – if you're an aspiring professional coach that wants to coach back here in Australia and give back, you know, especially to the, to the, to the state that you, you, you love so much. So it's, um, and you know, and that's not a, that's not crying foul or that's not thinking that I should be just given something because I represented Queensland or I played for Queensland. That's, that's a common theme that's, you know, asked of me or, or um, said to me by a hell of a lot of young coaches mm-hmm. or, um, or or aspiring coaches asking me what's the pathway, asking me how do you get here and how do you get there, and, you know, I don't even know that. Yeah, right, yeah. Mate, um, in, uh, in 2008, your last game for the Reds, um, unfortunately you, you tore your pec and... That that saw out your career for the Reds. Do you think that was because you were spending too much time in the gym, pushing too much tin, or you were too muscle bound, or what do you reckon, mate? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. No, um, I, I definitely. Uh, I, Eddie Jones once said to me, um, "Lato, you've become the world's best player ever since you found physical fitness." <laughs> Um, so in my younger years, I wasn't the most diligent when it came to gym. Um, so I certainly wasn't the one that I wasn't a gym junkie. I certainly didn't love going to the gym, but I certainly learned very quickly, um, that being strong in the areas that I needed to be, um, was, was required. But no, when I tore my pack, that was just one of those unfortunate things going back to you know your career being can be shortened by you know at a blink of an eye that was me just doing a cover tackle trying to put my body on the line and um yeah my hand just got stuck between the guy and the ground me running a full pelt and 
my body going one way and my pec and arm not wanting to come with me. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those unfortunate incidents, really. Yeah. Yeah, it was a hell of a way to go out. Absolutely heartbreaking stuff. But I want to get your thoughts on something, Latho. You very storied career, but there's one stat in particular that gives you a very, very unique perspective on things, and that's that you did go to three World Cups. So a lot of players don't get to go to one. You've gone to three. I want to get your opinion on and, and your thoughts and insight into um, the experience going to your first World Cup, like as a youngster, going to your first one, what's the anticipation, the feelings you have. The second one, which is very pertinent now because it was a home World Cup, which we're going to have in four years' time, and that's your second World Cup. And then the third one, the experience campaign. I've been a Wallaby for a decade, give or take. You know, you've got some youngsters coming through. You're the old head. Like three different stages of your career, three different perspectives. Like run us through sort of the feelings you get from each one. Yeah, well, basically all three had um, were all hugely different uh, for, for massively different reasons. '99 was was amazing. Um, you know, I was very young. '98 was my first tour and my first test cap on on, on a European tour in '98. Um, I got to play it. My uh, my first cap was at Stade de France, uh, which was a purposely built stadium for the Soccer World Cup which was on in 98. So we got to play there and that, and I debuted there. So from that, I went from there to Twickenham. uh, And then I think it was, I think it was Wales after that or Ireland. One of the two was my third. And so I was obviously very raw and fresh and new to um, the Wallabies. And then to go into 99 world cup in Europe and be a part of that squad uh, and to, be a part of the build-up and, and, and how professional it was um, and, and, and the things that were instilled in me of what it meant to be a Wallaby and what it meant to represent your country and the responsibilities in which came with that were all instilled with me and instilled in me in that tour. And, you know, for me, that was a, a, a very exciting eye-opener and, and really lit the fire to me wanting to be at the next one um, yeah. and, and and really inspired me to want to be the best in the world in my position um, as a rugby player, you know, yeah. given that everything that was just instilled in me, everything that I saw <laughs> and everything that I wanted to be a part of. So, you know, that really lit the fire. Um, and then obviously then to, to be part of the squad that won it, um, just, you know, basically just topped it off really. And, um, you know, and I, I, I wanted it, I just wanted it so bad. And then along came, uh, 2003, you know, I, I'd worked really hard, um, you know, 2000, 2001 and 2002 to earn my spot as a regular. You know, I worked really hard on my game. Um, you know, the biggest thing that people don't understand that within that four-year period, how much rugby rugby changed and, and it wasn't so much on the field, it was off the field. You know, we we went from that era of 98, 99 where bigger was better. It was the bigger you were and the heavier you were, the better you were. So, you know, I was sitting at 105 to 108 kilos. Um, That's a fucking skin big folds <laughs> weren't a massive thing back then. As long as you were under your weight, you were kind of fine. 
and so my skin folded around that 103. Um, <laughs> but then 2000, 2001 came along and it was, no, nah, now we need you. We need you fit. We need you lean. We need you big. So all of a sudden, I've gone from that to uh, that 98, 99 kilos, but then my skin folds were down to, you know, that 40, 48, 50 mark. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that's just not, unfortunately, you know, that's just not a click of the fingers. That's just <laughs> not a, just, just change your diet. You know, you know, there were massive changes and a lot of effort and a lot of things to do. And, you know, that's where we had to go if we wanted to evolve. And so there was all those changes, all that effort and everything to go into it. And then, you know, it was uh, um, oh, it was a test match, and I think it was at in it was against the All Blacks in Auckland just before the World Cup. It was the Bledders low, and just before we ran out, I just come in from the warm up, and I felt really sick. Um, and I went to the doctor, and he said, "Oh, he took my temperature, and I had a, a 30, uh, 38, nine or something, really high temperature." And he said, "Mate." There's nothing we can really do. Really do. We've got no one that can cover you. And I said, no, I just, I just said, give me some cup, ten, a couple of Panadol and I'll be fine. So I took some Panadol and played that test match. Um, and then after the game, I was floored. I was so sick. And, and luckily, my wife was there. And the next day when I got up, I, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so sick. It was the sickest I've ever felt. Anyway, she'd rang through to the our club doctor at the Reds and said, could you just meet me at the airport because something's really wrong with Chris. So when we flew back in, he took one look at me and, and said, mate, we're going to get you to the hospital. And in the end, I ended up having um, pneumonia plus um, influenza A, influenza B and two other super bugs that they didn't really know what they were at the time. And, uh, and I was in hospital for, for 13 days with pneumonia, you know, killing ah. Dealing with all that, and um, and I think when I got out seven days later, I had to be in Darwin for the World Cup camp pre camp. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and you know, for me, I built from that 99 to 2003, I built my you know, obviously built my body differently. You know, and, and all of a sudden I'd become, you know, I was either that top, I was in the top three of the fitness, um, the fitness tests. And whenever we did fitness, you know, I'd be rolling in either first, second or third, depending on who was there and where it was and what we're doing. But, um, you know, I was, I was very fit in and around that time. And then I went to the World Cup camp and, you know, I, I was, I couldn't finish drills and things like that. And, um, but by the time the World Cup came around, I was I was back to my normal self. But um, you know, and that Namibia game was my opportunity yeah. to show my level of fitness. And you know, I just had it in my head for that whole when I didn't get picked for the first two or three games in the World Cup. I just had it in my head that you know, as a as a as a non-member, I'm going to get I'm going to get my opportunity against Namibia. And when I get that opportunity, I, I'm really going to just show what the last four years have been all about. And hence, you know, I, I, I've broken all the records when it comes to GPS miles and and obviously 
was lucky enough to be on the end of some great play from the, from the players on the outside and inside where I was able to get in some good positions to get the tries that I got. And I really thought within myself that I'd done enough to prove that I was back to my old self. And, um, and then when I didn't get that opportunity after that play anymore, um, if I'm honest, it, it, it really, really hit hard and it, and it, and it um, you know, and it, to be honest, it still does. But, um, you know, when you put something in so much into wanting to be there and you know that you've, you've felt within yourself, it's unfortunately, and the reality is, and, and I'm starting to find that now as a coach, that it, it still does come down. It's not down to you. It comes down to, you know, the selectors and, and the coach and, you know, I didn't get that opportunity. So, um, but then on the flip side of that, to be part of a home, um, from that was from a personal point of view. But then from a from a rugby point of view and a and, and a and a Wallabies point of view, to be a part of a, a World Cup squad that was at home, and to see that again, really lit that fire to go. Okay, well. I want now 07. I want that to be the one where I've got to now do it again. I've, I've now got to restart again. And so, yep, I did that again and worked through that. And then, um, yeah, unfortunately, and then I came home from a, um, uh, from a Wallaby tour in, I think it was in 06. And we, so I'd done the full season super rugby, the, the, test matches um the local test matches and then we went on our european tour at the end of the year played that came back and i thought uh, we had a new coach um eddie was coming in and coaching the the reds uh things weren't going well at the reds i knew eddie was coming in and i knew he was there through the pre-season and i thought i'll just go down and i'll i'll have a i'll have a couple of days off and i'll go in early before christmas and i'll start doing the pre-season with the boys um and you know, show my support and, and help out. First session in, I've, we're playing fitness games. I've gone through and I've gone to put the ball down to score a try and someone's clipped me from the side and bang, needing a full knee reconstruction. Oh. And usually back then it was a 12-month recovery from operation and I had six months to get back in, and the, and it was six months to date uh, when the World Cup was was just about to start. So, uh, so then, yeah, I had that, or I had that to um, get a, a full knee reconstruction, um, rehabbed and done, plus leading games to it all before the World Cup started. And thankfully, I was able to do it and um, get it done. And then, yeah, to go over and, and represent again at another World Cup and start games and play in the games was fantastic. Um, and it was a, you know, it was obviously a very proud moment and to be a part of another one was, was, was huge, but, you know, there's obviously mixed emotions personally with them all. And, um, I suppose it's just a little, a small insight to, you know, it's not just all about, oh yeah, I'll sign with whoever. And, you know, you go to world cups, you play world cups and you have a fantastic career and everything's rosy. There's, you know, there's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of. A lot of things that go into making um, what is at the pinnacle in our game, and that's a World Cup. So, um, you know, and obviously there's there's a million stories and a million players with a million stories that go with it. But you know, that's just a little insight into you know the three that I've gone to. 
Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Mate, um, with with uh, all that you've learned in rugby and, and, and what you want to bring across to Colts, obviously bringing in a, uh, a culture into that Colts team that you've got to be coaching is very important. And, and probably top of the list is uh, where the blokes... Uh, what are your views on um, on players that wear budgie smugglers uh, in the in the shower compared to complete nud? Are you where do you sit on that, mate? These are the big questions. People will be asking this. I'm an old school shower, yeah. so I, I just go nude. Mate. There he is. I, I thought you would have been. It doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> yeah, but what about everyone else? <laughs> I don't really care. <laughs> And that's all that really matters. Not of your concern. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Just be mindful that you're now the coach and you're coaching 17, 18-year-olds, so you're not meant to jump in the shower as well, just just in case there was any confusion. You said ask me what I was like as a player. That definitely, like, I, that's definitely not what I'll be doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you cleared it up. Yeah. All right, good. That's good to hear. All right, last question then, Latho. We do a little thing here. Um very similar to fuck, marry, kill, but we don't say that because it's a rugby show and it's called ruck, marry, kill. So if you had the opportunity to someone laying at the bottom of a ruck and you just went, oh, I can no. shoe him here and there's no repercussions or you marry them or you have to kill them. We'll give you three names. And you have to let us know ruck, marry or kill. So the three names are Nick Stiles, Todai Kefu and Stephen Keys. <laughs> ruck, marry, kill. Who would you rock? Who would you marry? And who would you kill? <laughs> well, I would probably been on the end of a few shoeings from Nick Styles, so I'd like I'd like to say I'd love to get him back for a few. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, I've been I've been mates with Stephen for so long now. There's no way in hell I'd want to marry him. <laughs> um, but he's, but he's a mate. Uh, mate, I, I couldn't kill anyone, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> nor just... could I marry the other two. So, you know, let's go all safe and I'd say I'd ruck all Ruck them all. Yeah. Ruck them all. I probably, I probably wouldn't survive rucking Kef. Um, <laughs> but that would probably be my preferred option than the other two. <laughs> Brilliant answer. Like, you've got to be a very good coach being able to placate everyone's questions and concerns like that. So, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> you've done brilliantly there, Latho. Um, all right, Latho. Well, look, that rounds out uh, this episode of Spinning Yarns. We appreciate you, you spending a bit of time with us, just to have a bit of a yarn. And, mate, all the best with the Colts next year. We can't wait to see what you do with them and Phil Mooney and Harry Higgins. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Latho. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks, Latho. Too easy. See you later. See you, Latho. Chris Latham. Wow. What a legend. What a legend. That was sick. It's not until you actually sort of sit and actually go through stats or... like Because as I said, he was my favourite player. Oh, man. Like... Socks down, Socks down, chicken legs, yep. like weird running style, that sort of hunched over running style, but he was it, deceptively strong. He was deceptively skillful. He brought back the talk when everyone, the was, everyone was trying to do. And he would, because he's a lefty, but as a righty, he'd hold it like that and he'd hold, and he'd actually, so you know, most mm. people sort of carriage the ball like that. Yeah, yeah. He'd hold it over and, and it 
can sit down the sideline. He was my favourite player. I remember one try he scored down the touchline against, I think it was the Otago Highlanders ah. in the corner of Ballymore, coming into that northeast, uh, northwestern corner yep. where the old grandstand, the grandstand was, yep. but then the um, general admission, yeah, yep. steel seats yeah, that yep. you would stomp on. And he's caught it down the touch side, gets hit, hit, and just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Getting bumped right on the sideline, scores it. And that was Chris Latham to a T, like... Deceptively strong, but deceptively skillful. Like, didn't look like he should Love be it. a good footy player, but was the best and just went fucking hell for leather. Man, I, um, man, he, uh, just, oh, just the way, even when he was explaining, uh, his career, and he goes, and then I play for Wes, and then I, uh, Colts, uh, Juniors, Colts, then I play for the Reds, then I play for the Wallabies. He completely didn't mention the Waratahs, right? Disregard the Tars. Those dogs. Those ten, he doesn't... I don't want to talk about that era of my life, the yeah. dark years. <laughs> I love that. No, well, Chris, Chris Latham is the man. Love and that's it. it. Like, he's he wants to coach, but he's like, I'm going back to Colts. I just want to coach. Yeah, my right. He's going to finish school soon. He just wants to give back, and that's exactly what you want. So. I love that. Awesome stuff. That rounds out this week's episode of Spinning Yarns. An absolute corker there from Chris Latham uh, out of Narrabri. Absolute gun. Um, but in the meantime, as always, please like, subscribe to our YouTube channel. It means nothing to you. It means everything to us. Rate and review the podcast. It actually helps a hell of a lot. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you listen to the podcast, please uh, review it. Give it five stars or a thumbs up, whatever the fuck you do. Uh, I don't know what it is. But on YouTube, at the very least, please yeah. do subscribe to the channel because that does go a long way to helping the page grow. And all we want to do is just set the bungholes to fizz around rugby in Australia. So yeah. if you can do that, that'd be absolutely awesome. In the meantime, I'm Jay Ball. Big fat dust. Stay sexy and we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.